All right, good evening, everyone. Sounds like you can hear me. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land on which we gather today. We respectfully recognise Elders past, present and future. Uh, so my name is Grace McQuilton and I'm welcoming you tonight as the curator of the exhibition Remote Controlled Terrorist Coffin. Fabulous name for an exhibition. Um, and also its associated public program. Uh, this event tonight is the second last in an incredible series of public discussions exploring the complex interplay of art and design in the context of the war on terror, warfare in general, and politics in the digital age. The exhibition, Remote Controlled Terrorist Coffin, features a new work by US artist Adam Kalkin that blurs the boundaries between games and war and raises questions about the ethical dimensions of design and the human impact of new technologies. It's providing an important springboard for much needed debate and discussion about these issues. Um, the exhibition ends on Thursday of this week, so if you haven't seen it already, I encourage you to visit. It's at RMIT's Project Space Gallery, which is on Cardigan Street in Carlton. Um, our last event uh, in the public program is on Thursday, which is the last day at 12.30, and it's a discussion um, looking at the legacies of the Dada art movement, which nearly turns 100, um, and uh, thinking about the history of art as protest. Um, so with that brief introduction, I'll now hand over to my wonderful colleague, Kate Rhodes, who will be uh, facilitating the discussion tonight. Thank you, Grace, and thank you all very much for coming to the Design Hub. I'm the Design Hub's uh, co-curator, there's two of us, myself and Fleur Watson are at the helm of a small but fabulous team. And as we're a nice crowd, size crowd tonight for interactive discussion, let's try and keep it as free-flowing and as open as we can. We're really happy not to just wait until the end to take questions, but if you've got something you want to say, stick your hand up, run stand down. up, run down, yell it out. So... <clears throat> Thanks, Grace, for asking me and asking all of us to be involved tonight. Um, Grace has asked that this panel look at the links between game design and military strategy. Games and digital play are now at the cutting edge of design. As the game industry continues to grow, questions are arising about the use of game technologies for military intelligence, the ethics of war games and the impact of game violence on cognitive processing and emotional control among consumers. So with the expertise around the panel tonight, it means that we'll be able to cover this territory and a whole lot more, I think. And I'll put my hand up now to say that I am not one of the experts on the panel. Uh, games and game design is not my area of expertise, but I'm here, hopefully, luckily for you, to be the question who's, person who's going to ask the silly, big, open questions to draw out the conversation. The experts we do have are Associate Professor Stefan Voltz, at the end there, who is director and founder of RMIT's Games and Experimental Entertainment Laboratory, the G-Lab, and an award-winning game and interaction designer in his own right. Next, we have Associate Professor Stefan Greuter. He's the director of the RMIT Centre for Game Design Research, and as a researcher, Stefan focuses on real-world, cross-disciplinary problems and uses a game design approach to address the issues. 
We then have Professor Larissa Hjorth, an artist, digital ethnographer, Deputy Dean of Research and Innovation and Co-Director and Founder of RMIT's Digital Ethnography Research Centre. Last but not least, the fantastic Dr. Dan Golding, who's a critic, academic and the director of Free Play Independent Games Festival, which opens on the 10th of April. So I hope you'll all get along to that if you're not already diarising it now. Okay, to the questions. I'm going to kick off with a few questions of my own. But as I said, we really want this discussion to be something that includes all of you, that makes the conversation as relevant uh, to you, your research, your thinking, the games that you're playing, the conversations that you're having in this area as much as possible. So let's just keep it rolling. But let's maybe start, I think always a good place to start anywhere, any time with most things is, is history. It's often to look back and think about, okay, where is the place that we're currently thinking about? Where does it come from? And Stefan Voltz has kindly put his hand up to be the historian uh, of the panel today. So Stefan, what are the roots of this connection that's being made here between games and war and military strategy? And what were the conditions that led to the emergence of war games? Mm. Well, the connection between games, play and, and, and military are, of course, dating a long time back. Really, you know, um, you could say one, one an, an interesting question would be how has the relationship changed uh, with the computer, right? And how has this been co-evolving? Um, I mean, we could go back to Go, the game of Go, um, other games, chess, uh, or chess predecessors who've been, that we've been uh, used to train, um, plan, map out, project, uh, prognose how uh, people will behave and uh, given uh, certain combat-like situations and really abstracting um, the reality of war into something that's a model, I guess, and visualizing that. So um, what's really interesting is when, um, uh, when that sort of usage um, that was quite prevalent in Asian cultures uh, for thousands of years, you could even say, uh, when that got picked up in Western countries. Um, so I'll probably uh, use the example of, uh, um, at, on the one hand, you can see this in the predecessors of computing. So I'm going to you know, basically say computing here on this one side, and on the other side, you've got um, really military strategy and people using games for that purpose. So in computing, you've had people... Are using the, I guess, the metaphor and well, the computational model of chess uh, all throughout the history of computer science. Really, George Babbage, uh, John von Neumann, uh, Morgenstern—they've all used chess as a paradigm, which is, you know, then really, if you've come to think of it, it's a combat game. Um, and um, on the other hand, uh, you you can see that uh, in the uh, beginning of the 19th century, around between 1785, something like that, and then really ultimately culminating uh, with uh, the the building of a first war um, table, you could say in 1811, uh, by um, a Prussian um, guy named Reiswitz, von Reiswitz. Yes, please. Yeah, image, please. So um, Mr. Reiswitz was um, very keen on uh, inventing something that would help um, the Prussian military and the academies to basically train their cadets to, you know, uh, be ready 
for um, planning and strategizing, and really, as I said before, prognosing um, and modeling certain scenarios. So he built this table, and it's quite um, a quite delicate thing with you know um, drawers where you would put in the tokens and. And so um, he called this the war game. Um, so uh, it is a war game, really, and it then got to, use, uh, got to be used extensively um, in the Prussian academies, and then uh, you know was picked up all throughout uh, the world by the you know the British, of course, and the uh, U.S. There were several streams, of course, but Reisitz typically is quoted to be you know to have been. Uh, Precursing and, and inventing interesting st stuff, so you could set up different topologies and um, different scenarios. From um, there on, um, the usage and what's really interesting is, for example, this then got spatialized immensely, right? Because this is on a scale, but then there were uh, game-like scenarios, um, war game-like scenarios that were on a scale of one uh, to ten, I think. So Pearl Harbor, for example, was built on a one to ten uh, um, thing where people were then in retrospectively trying to understand how they could have you know, prevented Pearl Harbor. Very interesting. So at the same time, if you look at the Babbage and, and these guys, um, around um, uh, uh, 1943, I think, um, this is the first uh, known example of an analog computer where a circuitry was basically uh, patented. Um, where basically the guys who patented, had it patented say, said it's a game, but clearly it was a missile um, simulator. So um, if you could show that, please. Um, no, this is the um, Enigma. Sorry, the, uh, this is uh, the precursor to the atomic bomb. This is Mr. Higginbotham. Gets another example. I'll just take it from there. I um, want to show you the, um, the drawing of the missile. Um, here it is. So, uh, uh, Miss Rayman and um, uh, what is his name? Thomas Baldingham, something. Um, they basically filed this. So, um, but what's most interesting and kind of scary if you really think about it, uh, and then I'll end because then I'll probably uh, have said enough already. Um, is that yet another example where you see that computing history and game war games coincide is by example of Mr. Higginbotham. Um, William Higginbotham was, uh, had several careers. His first career was that he was um, vital in building the first nuclear bomb that functioned, and uh, he was responsible for all kinds of things in there, the circuitry, the time clock, the timer, time mechanism, and he did this in Los Alamos. And um, then uh, when he saw the effect, like so many scientists in the Manhattan Project, um, he was, uh, I guess, scared to shits and became a quite um, prolific, uh, you know, spokesperson of, um, you know, using bombs, these types of bombs, of course, just uh, never again. And um, he's the person who in 1958, around, uh, you know, 13, 14 years later, uh, became uh, someone who had the idea of building an oscilloscope-based um, graphical uh, computer game. Um, so it's very interesting to me that with him, you've got these two evolutions uh, in one person where um, he then built the game of you know, Tennis for Two uh, that was then used at Brookhaven Laboratory um, to you know, 
attract people, to show how science could be done. And ultimately, Tennis for Two, if you really think about it, is showing a trajectory, right? Um, it's showing a missile trajectory, really, to be exact. And um, that's what he was very good at. So um, there's certainly a historical trajectory, to use the word, that leads from... Um, you know, early attempts to spatialize these games using the war table, attempts to abstract the action onto a, uh, tiles, um, over to the coinciding of computing and um, and um, games and war games, um, ultimately. And you could go, I could go on forever and ever, of course. And yeah, you know, there's. Uh, Clearly, a very intricate and, and dear relationship between military uh, technology and games, and both of them uh, evolving because of that. Um, there's one guy, and there's several books about this, um, who's been saying that um, with games, um, that one of the underlying principle that you will see ever and ever again, basically, it's Patrick Krogan's argument. And there's also a German guy, Klaus Pierce, who's been published before that, um, saying that one of the underlying principles of computer games that he will see, and I'm not going to be judgmental or moralistic about it, is, of course, uh, military action. And you will see this uh, in the way that you're hitting moving targets, that you're bound to strategize, that you're bound to prognose. Thank you for that genius Wikipedia entry to that question. That was very good. Thank you. And it relates to this um, question that Grace throws up about um, as the game industry continues to grow, questions are arising about the use of game technologies for military intelligence. So what are these questions and what's actually happening in the crossover? And Dan, you noted to me when we met a little while ago that game designers are in fact speaking at military conferences. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's not something that is necessarily publicised. But, uh, I mean, uh, Will Wright, for example, the you know famous, well-beloved um, creator of The Sims, SimCity, etc., uh, yeah, has spoken at a number of military technology conferences and it, you never really hear about it. You can go through, like, local papers report on it. There's a couple of photos of him, like, getting into a tank, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, you know... You, the other effect of that is that we don't really know what what he does there, and he's certainly not the only one. He's just the the one that I've looked into into particular. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the 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 links run deeply uh, in ways that aren't always visible, and certainly that taps into what uh, Stefan was saying before about. Um, this this sort of historic link between games and war, but I think as well, yeah, with with the digital computer and the advent of digital computing technology uh, uh, as a um, war strategy, a strategy of war, a technology of war, um, these links have have deepened uh, in in ways that it, that are actually aren't really clear. I don't think, um, certainly not to an outsider. Mm. Well, I might just leap straight into this, to the old chestnut question, the one you're all hoping I'm not going to ask, but I'm going to ask it, which is, you know, to get it out there, to push the thinking where the panel perhaps thinks it should be, and that, that question is, is violence in video games correlative, causal, or completely unrelated to violence in real life? Maybe the things that we've been talking about might relate to this. And I ask this question conscious 
that it separates video games, violence from that and other forms of media. But I'm interested in how the response from each of you on the panel might also consider a long history of public violent spectacle, you know, whether it's theatrical, gladiatorial, athletic or cinematic. Um, maybe Stefan Greuter, maybe you've got um, something to say about this. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, of, of course, like, I mean, when, when I... Huh? It's not on. Oh, okay, no, I need, I need to lick the ice cream. Yes, yeah. Okay, no, it's better. <laughs> uh, I mean, f for me as a, as a dad, I've got like a very young child who's eight and, a very, um, and an older one who is 18. And, um, and of course, like you, you worry about, you know, violence in games. And, um, and when, when we actually talked about it, like when, when I talked to them about that, I have to go to this uh, panel and that we talk about games and war. I mean, of course, like the violence, that is the first thing that comes to, to mind. Um, but then we, we discussed like, well, what does it actually mean? What is a war game? And, and we came to the conclusion that, you know, like even chess, as you, as you said before, is a war game as well. Then we have to think about like games are always going to be an abstraction of what happens in the real world and uh, and games usually focus only of certain on certain aspects of the real world but no game ever comprehensively like treats all of the aspects of something as complex as war and if it did it probably wouldn't be a lot of fun to play because I mean war is a really complex thing if you look at uh, Sun Tzu's description when he talks about the art of war I mean he talks about that war needs to be planned has got economical you know, repercussions uh, it needs to be strategized tactics are involved energy needs to be expended and yeah it's, it's, it's really like it's such a complex problem or a concept war um, that yeah, we probably wouldn't want to play it. Um, I just want to riff off that because yeah, you can wear multiple hats when thinking about games and violence but um, I mean one of the things to think about just in a really basic level humans are quite violent. You, you go to a playground, kids can be nasty and it's not video games that embed that nastiness that comes from humans and I think that's the very the thing to think about media is to not fall into the media effects models because it takes media out of the context of the social and media is social. So even though that's been branded by Facebook and now it's social media, but media has always been social and I think we need to think about it in that way. Um, that, yeah, <laughs> we were having wars way before games came along, but they're just a great scapegoat, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Look, I want to ask a question. Who of you here has been in a war zone? Ah, that's a very good question. Yeah, Jen, I know that you've been. There's have, some people with their hands up. Yes, yes. Look, I have not been, and you too, I have not been, but I mean, I have met people who have been amongst them. Jen, we talked a little bit, little bit about this. Um, I know people who've been in, in the Balkany, uh, you know, Balkan countries. Uh, I've got many friends that I grew up with who basically came from there, came directly from war. War is fucking dirty, and it's full of blood and screams. We don't have a fucking clue. Let me say this. So that's the first thing that we should really be aware of. Secondly, games, and I agree with you, they are just non-consequential activities, okay? 
In other words, it's perfectly fine to play war in a game. It's better to play war in a game than to actually, you know, have a real war ongoing. I'd rather, I'd prefer that always. The problem is that we're having, we're starting to have a lot of overlaps, right? And it's not life imitating art, it's just that there is a certain, as I said, collusion between the two that then leads to, for example, to give a very concrete example how this is being used, we, you know, Arma 3 and the Arma engine is, has been used uh, for a long time, over a decade almost now, um, as a concrete training tool to um, elaborately uh, create scenes and that are half physical, half virtual oftentimes, that they're using Oculus Rift style 3D environment stuff. So throw in all kinds of interesting technology, interesting to us as designers, to create and train people. Now, does that allow for us to judge that this is ethically not kosher? I don't know. Because again, if you really think about games, and I've done a little bit of research, because I was talking a lot about this with my wife, like you did, um, like, what's the point about this, right? About violence in games. And she said something I found quite interesting, but I find her interesting because she's my spouse. Obviously, so I, you know, <laughs> I better do. <clears throat> um, she said, to her, the point is, does the game engender a type of cruelty for you to act to be continuing to play? Is does the gameplay engender you to be cruel? Like in Manhunt, for example, right? Which was hotly debated. Um, where you had to basically very violently and cruelly kill people, but then you have to ask, is that still okay within and for a majority of people who we are, we are the people, to discuss and then settle on what's okay and who should be banned or do, should this title be not available to the public unless, and then I think, well, if people really want to play it, they should be free to play it. I don't, I'm not one to tell anyone what not to do, but then as a society we have to decide on that. So again, it's really interesting, and I'll shut up then. Uh, if you look at, there's a website that uh, basically TV tropes, and it really lists a lot of what they call video game cruelty potential. They really list a lot of things that you do in games, even in Tetris. Like you're being violent against these poor stones, right? You eliminate them. You know, seriously, I mean, this is, uh, I don't want to be so ironic, but um, I'm satirizing, of course. But um, really, there's a lot of examples, like just in a regular action adventure, you do stuff that's not okay, right? If you really think about it. In Call of Duty, you do it all the time. But again, is the cruelty in a war game um, essential part to drive forward the act activity? That, to me, is a very interesting question. Yeah, can games have a kind of civilising effect in the, in the sense that it gets us to ask these questions of ourselves? That's what they did in, in Italy. All throughout history, games have been used with uh, El Palio. Um, they have been used to civilise people. It's a form of exerting control, not just an outlet, to basically create a stable uh, form of society. So. Yeah. That's nothing new. That's what the Romans did. That's what you know. a lot of societies have been doing. Maybe we should be asking ourselves, what are the judgments and what are the ideologies that are driving us to believe that, oh, there's a beauty and an aesthetic and it's free of everything, right? Whereas that is probably not true, right? Because it's still tainted, so to speak, by some kind of ideology that sits behind that. So. Uh, yep. I think the question of whether violence in games influences players... Um, is quite complicated and to get to that point you have to already have answered about a dozen questions before then and the first probably one of those is does art shape the way that we see the world and the answer I think always has to be yes <laughs> and so 
taking it from that perspective, uh, then, yeah, of course, games shape the way that we see the world. The behavioural question is a whole different thing, and it's, I think, much more complicated and, and to some extent, less interesting than actually just thinking about, as Larissa was saying, um, media are social and um, shape our perception um, and our uh, relations to each other and society. Uh, and so taken within that, then, yes, of course, games have an effect. Um, but uh, equally, I think it's worth asking why violence is such a key aesthetic for games. Uh, and that is, uh, again, historically located, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, when games emerge at a particular point in time and a particular point in uh, uh, youth aesthetics, teen aesthetics, um, when, you know, grunge is popular, metal is popular, uh, and we look at, you know, uh, how games have been marketed up until that point as perhaps a, a children's thing. And so at that point in time, games uh, can perhaps meaningfully look towards violence and gore and say, hey, this is a way of saying we're getting older, we're maturing, we're growing up. Uh, and uh, perhaps in that sense, that's one of the reasons why that's become so key for the media form as a whole. And there was a third point I was going to make in there, and I've kind of forgotten what it is. Well, so there's I might a, there's leave kind it. of... Um, there's this... There's this other, I think, um, if I'm not talking about the construction of violence, but perhaps some other kind of persuasive techniques, if you like. And perhaps the question is, who is making war games? And Dan, you've noted that they're not made locally, that war games, because of all of their spectacular graphics, are for the most part out of the, you know, too costly for independent gamers to make. So is there an issue, do you think, around the design of war games if large companies and corporations, even governments, uh, dominate their creation? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, so uh, I suppose the, the point that's tied up in, in that point about where they're made is that the aesthetics of gore are tied up really closely with the aesthetics of realism and, you know, not real realism because war, war games like military first-person shooters aren't real in any meaningful sense, but they, they're photoreal. Like, they tap into what our understanding... I mean, what our understanding of the mediated war looks like, war in film, war on TV, how that is then translated to games, and that's how you get that. And that takes a lot of money to produce, and so it becomes this high-cost, high-win uh, financial equation. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, big corporations, big governments all uh, end up... Um, not big governments, sorry. There is really only one, a, a few key examples of governments producing these, so that's perhaps another question, a slightly separate question. Uh, yes, so yes, I suppose is my answer, yes. And Stefan, you touched on a point earlier about um, around the ethics and how you personally feel about uh, these games. In fact, both Stefans. And so there's this question around sort of the ethics of designing war games or first-person shooter type games. So how do you and all of you are lecturers and supervisors and you bring your own values to teaching in this area, how do you see your role when students present you with a game that they're interested in or even one that they've created that you find ethically or morally questionable? Hands on. 
ethics, and ethics are a subject in the eye of the beholder. So we do, as RM, of course, as RMIT, we do have ethical policy, and yes, you have to have clearance. Um, but we're speaking specifically of... Yeah, are you personally trying to go to a certain kind of game maker? You know, are you there? Do you have a strong position? You know, you don't want to see a certain kind of game made. You're not interested in excess violence and gore. Are you like, no, let it all happen and then we'll discuss it later? No, it depends. And really, because... um, Look, we've had two students. One of them actually uh, gave this today, donated this, so you can have a look. Steel Battalion Controller, one uh, intricate uh, vertical tank uh, mech game. <coughs> Very unique, uh, collectible. Um, <clears throat> and these two students, Alex and Will, they organized a war game that they invented and that we played down in the long room there. It was really great fun. Why? Because we wanted to test how that feels if you use the space and there's different war tables and then there's elements of sabotage, you know, where you steal things from others. So we use that as a paradigm. There's nothing ethically wrong with that. It's, as I said, it's a war game that is non-consequential. Now, um, if there's something that's ethically questionable, um, then yes, it has to have clearance and there's others who will then also deem it not doable. Um, I personally, it's it's a, it really it's. I mean, we we'd need an example, something that is so gory. But maybe the question is, what is the goal of that as an experiment or as a, re- a type of research? Does it question how much can people stand? How much gore is is acceptable, right? Or under what circumstances would you choose, say, the gory solution or the violent solution versus the non-violent solution? That could be, but this is not ethically questionable. So, but it, it is. It must be embedded in a reasonable and interesting and um, new type of question that brings forth new kinds of knowledge. So that's it, right? If it doesn't do that, and it's just a, um, a thing that does it for itself, or just for the the pure aesthetics of being violent, then it's bullshit, and it doesn't have to do. It doesn't have a place at the university. It probably has a place in the parlor, or being drunk, or you know, hanging out with you with your friends. That's okay, but not here. But I mean, I I find the Sistine Chapel ethically objectionable. Like th- this is a, a magnificent piece of art that's designed to reinforce the 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 power and hegemony of um, you know particularly. Uh, problematic cultural institution that has done a lot of harm over the course of centuries. Uh, and so I don't know, like, do, like it's, it's our job to investigate uh, these pieces of work. And if I find something particularly like viscerally repugnant, that's maybe a different question to whether I find it ethically confronting because I find a lot of things ethically confronting, right? <laughs> but do you use your role as a lecturer to, you know, impress your opinion on students, on what's being taught? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, no, I think it's, I think it's a really terrible... Te- no, okay, look, I'm not going to be that strong, but I, I don't... I don't yeah, uh, none that I've taught personally, I don't think. But, I mean, look, I don't, I don't find a lot of value in sort of saying, here's one position and here's another position and maybe you will then go and choose it. Like, I, I'm, I have a classroom that is open to people putting forward other opinions and I really hope, like, I really value that. But I'm also, I think it's really important for me to say, well, this is what I think. We, we do get occasionally this student who wants to do a, a gory game or something or, or a first-person shooter. But, I mean, the thing is that they actually 
it's not so much, not, they're actually quite boring from a game design concept and, and there's so much more you can do with games and, and when you actually, I mean, if you just have a gun, that's like really a very, very simple tool to interact with your environment. But if you then use other things, other user interfaces, like you know, I mean, your keyboard or, or the Kinect or your joystick or you know the leap motion, I mean, it gives you so many more opportunities to interact with your space and it's so much harder to actually design uh, game experiences with that in mind than it is to just gun and point and shoot. Very funny because at the Leap Motion, uh, Emmanuel Guardiola, who's a designer who was a designer with Ubisoft and um, who's uh, been doing interesting stuff on using games to assess behavior and prognose behavior, for example, to you know give, find the right job for them. That's what he did for the French Ministry of Education. He has designed a game where you use your finger like this, it's called Blue Estate, uh, with the leap motion, and you basically, it's a shooter game. So that I found quite interesting and innovative and very hard to design because they did a lot of testing with this, like when is this fun, how fast do you have to be, blah, blah, blah. Just saying. Um, yeah, it's, it's like my little son, when he finds a stick, it's a gun too. And I'm sure. <laughs> it's a fishing rod. Let's right, say okay. the central <laughs> element, of course, That's in the game is... I wouldn't say that the central element in the game is the, the using that type of input. Of course, it's you know embedded into the world of Blue Estate, and which is a novel, um, a graphic novel sort of uh, series, which is very violent and very sexist. But um, you know, it's uh, it's uh, he did a good job. Five things from a design perspective. Just saying, it's, there is stuff that you can do. Um, well, that's a, a good uh, segue. That horrible word. Um, and I'm thinking about the language that predominates in the media in particular right now, this idea of a this sort of war on everything, the war on terror, the war on drugs, this war on gender. And Larissa Hill sent us this very interesting uh, clip, which we'll play now. Um, and I'll not kick off a discussion about, amongst other things, Gamergate. Etc. Well, I have one little idea. I want to tell you a little story. If I may. Are you going to butt in with that? Okay, you butt in with the story and then we'll have the, the yes, clip. Yes, very yeah. quick story. Um, I had a situa situation, not sure about that, and that was an, a personal uh, situation um, where I was approached by uh, an organization that asked me to design interfaces for tanks, uh, for real tanks, and they clearly came across, and I can't tell you, of course, who that was, um, and it's not made up, um, and it really put me at the at the question at the, I guess, crossroads in a way. I felt I felt that it was like the crossroads. Am I going to do this? And uh, and I said no. It's true, and because they say, oh, you get, you know, you have a good feeling for interfaces, and you will tell us help us to make this more efficient, and you know, maybe even pleasurable. You know, I was like this many years ago, ten years ago, and I said no. And I know someone who, you know, so that I know people, of course, and it's not so, I would even say, uh, Dan, in my opinion, it's not so hidden. It's not just been reported on. That's the thing, you know, that's the difference. Because I know a lot of companies that have engines that are being used widely in different countries with formulatory pur purposes for simulation. I know two companies in Germany, and they say that. Oh, the Bundeswehr is, you know, we're working for the Bundeswehr. We're working for, you, for the U.S. Army. There is, by the way a regional uh, chapter of Bohemia in Australia that works for the Australian uh, defense um, for a localization of Armour 3 that's being used for Australian for the Australian Army, just saying. So this is happening here too. 
And it's, this is, why is this bad, if I may ask? Because there's people out there who are protecting this, the values that we, that we want to have, freedom of speech, that we can sit together. There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. It's all in the eye of the beholder. We'll pick this up. Yeah. All right. Hold that thought. All right. Here we go. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 Mission failed. You suck. Oh, you're so close. That was close. Okay, I want to try. What do I need to know? Ah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, just let me switch my character because you will ruin my rating. There we go. Now, it's just like Call of Duty, except the gameplay is way more realistic, so. Oh, cool. I can be a girl. Yeah. Knock yourself out. I'm going to grab us beers. Oh, she's cute. Listen up, soldiers. We've just received intel that there are insurgents hiding in that village. Let's go. Wait, why am I not m moving? You hang back, Private. Wait, what, what the <sighs> No. No. <laughs> what are you doing hanging out in the barracks all by yourself, lazy? No, I, I think... I think my character is... Just raped. No. No, 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 That's never happened to me. You must have pressed the wrong button. That's not part of the game. Ted, trust me, it happened. No. You were just assaulted by a fellow soldier. Do you wish to report? You're weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> What's this? You know what? Let me go check the message boards. Yes, I wish to report it. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Did you know he has a family? No. Does that change your mind about reporting? No. What? Level 25, unlocked. Oh my God. It's just like a ton of paperwork. Okay. This is great. Have you seen this picture of the big, fat Japanese baby? You're supposed to be Look checking the message boards. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you gotta see that picture later. Paperwork complete. Welcome to the Pentagon, soldier. Good luck. Ooh, Pentagon. Watch out, they're attacking your character. There isn't even anyone around me. What were you wearing? Be a team player. Occupational hazard. You gotta go along to get along. Character assassination complete. Attention, soldier. Your attacker was found guilty in a military court. Yes! Finally, thank you! But his commanding officer chose to reject that decision, so he is now back on active duty. What? They can do that? What the f is this game? F your f***ing stupid military bull. Language, language, be a lady. This is insane. Why would anyone want to play this? Look, I checked the message boards and it doesn't say anything, so obviously you did something wrong. It's probably best you don't play. Okay? There we go. Why are you making that noise? It helps. All right, well, there's a, there's a lot in there. Um... <laughs> And obviously a lot of very serious stuff, um, but interesting in the way that Adam Culkin, in a way, with the work at Project Space, uses humour to get at some pretty serious issues. Well, Larissa, what do you make of this? Why did I put that in? Um, well, when, when I was asked to be on this panel, I thought, I don't do stuff on um, war. And then I realised, actually, I kind of do, because I do stuff about gender politics, which is a war, you know. Um, and I think this is where I'm going to get Dan to kind of talk about the Gamergate controversy, which really, I mean, it didn't 
tell us anything new about the industry. It just showed, exposed what were tacit things. Now, in, in terms of this um, particular clip, I think it's really interesting when you think about the military and they get 19,000 sexual assaults every year. And out of those, about like one third actually get proven. And, you know, that, so, and there's, there's a lot of sexism there, there's a lot of homophobia, racism, etc. And I think this is sometimes the arguments around games and war can kind of forget the soft wars that are going on. Um, the kind of thinking about, like, for example, what does it mean to play games in South Korea when, you know, like, for, they, they have um, conscri- conscription, so you have to do two years. And most kids do it when they're about 16, 17. Um, for two years, they sit there at the border looking across at North Korea. And for a long time, they weren't allowed to play games. Um, you know, so they would leave their game, they'd leave their PC bung in, you know, Shinchon and go to the border and, and sit there looking at, you know, probably their family across the border. Um, and then the military was like, oh, actually, maybe we don't need to ban games because maybe we can put first-person shooters in there. And there was a really good um, Korean group that did um, this game called Shoot Me If You Can where they actually used the camera phone as a shooting device. So you ran around the streets of um, uh, Shinchon taking pictures of your enemy. Um, and I think that, that idea of the camera as the, you know the whole kind of like um, military metaphors in that as well. But yeah, I just wanted to bring up the gender um, debate because I think it's kind of there. It's the pink elephant in the room. And I'm going to let Dan answer and then I'm going to open it up to the audience for you. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's really, it's a really complicated set of relationships, I suppose, that that, that is there um, that certainly... Yeah, between military culture, militarized culture, and the kinds of rhetoric that we see in uh, the huge um, and terrible gender debates and harassment. I mean, if you look at if you look at the language that the groups involved in that use, they you know call them Operation Whatever, or, you know, and they have this like pseudo militarized language as to you know the the next harassment target that they're going to pick. Um, and so I definitely, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's. Well, there I go. Good. Okay. Good. It's, it's there, but it, it, it's. I mean, it's really complicated. I think to unpick as well. Did you, like, uh, I'm assuming everybody here knows about the Gamergate controversy. Hands up. Who doesn't know about it? Just to out. Yourselves. I didn't know about it. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, because I, sure. I just wanted you to kind of. Talk a little oh, bit more like about generally what, what it is. Yeah, what what happened, what it kind of exposed, and you know some of the kind of bigger issues that it's resonating in terms of, you know, the darker side of the yeah. of games. I mean, like, I, 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 I don't like going <clears throat> on the dark side because I actually think games are really fantastic performative spaces that can allow people to kind of go through performativity, which you know is about creativity and about play and about innovation. Mm. But I think there is this very the re- very real thing that games come out of cultures and cultures produce certain things and you know um, mm. well uh, yeah so the, the like 30 second summary I would say is that Gamergate is the ultimate outcome of an industry that has for decades told young teenage men that they are the centre of this world when that's never been the case in any sort of demographic means and to the point where over the last 10 years we've had a real um, burst of and growth of 
clever, intelligent uh, criticism and writing and activism in games that has initiated a pushback against the idea that games are just for boys, which they've never been, to the point where then this thing, which is called Gamergate, is created as a pushback, I think, to actual progressive shifts in games culture and shifts towards you know, more equal gender representation, more equal, you know, more, more uh, prominent criticism of representation in games as well, which essentially manifests itself in what Gamergate is, which is this whole series of incidents that I'm not going to go into, but it just essentially manifested in uh, the widespread organised harassment of and trolling of uh, uh, high-profile and not even high-profile uh, women in games and uh, people who say anything in remotely in support. Sure. Mm-hmm. Stefan Greta, Stefan Voltz, do you have anything to say about not so much Gamergate, which was also a hashtag, um, and the this all happened, I think, about August last year, so it's topical. Um, but did Stefan Greta, Stefan Voltz, do you have anything to add to this sort of issue about you know gender and uh, within the games industry? I actually spoke about Brendan for about this uh, quickly. Um, there, we've got a conference upcoming, DGRA, Digital Games Research Association, and um, there are, I understand, a lot of uh, submissions to DGRA that were dealing with Gamergate. I would say that I'm not very knowledgeable about this. I've been following because I just basically say, look, um, we need to, it's always interesting from a design standpoint to have uh, what is not a, a good term for it, but minorities, because women are not minorities, as far as I know. So it's uh, even that in itself, for someone to say, is kind of like, what? Um, anyways, um, so it's always good to have new perspectives that come from different cultural um, you know, uh, corners. Um, then the question becomes, is there a specific, say, gay game? What would, but then in itself, the right, that would be, that would be, is, can you say that? No, you can't, right? Right. So, is there games? There was for a long time. There was a tradition in in game making where uh, one of the holy grails was let's create games for girls. You know, Brenda Laurel did this. I don't know if you're familiar with Brenda Laurel, Computers as Theater, one of the pioneers of um, looking at ga- you know computer spaces and games as performative uh, spaces, as uh, Larissa said. And that even if you think about it, was like maybe wrong. Then Facebook came and you know women were playing, or obviously are. That's what the stats say. I'm using the medium for certain purposes as a putty, um, you know, to connect to others, to socialize. So um, I think um, we as a community, and by that I mean academics, we need to be open and embracing and be welcoming whoever wants to be in. And the problem really is that there's a lot of, of of course, and I'm not sure if that has to do with military, I don't know, precursors or with that history, it might and it might well be because there is a lot of violence in games, but as I've tried to point out, there are sometimes it's implicit and it's not explicit, right? Um, and that has an effect on everything. It might and might not. There's dispositions. There's also family structures still around, and there's people using and consuming other types of media. So never try to just nail it on that. There's always an ecosystem of, of factors that come into play if something happens, and that's really the point. What could happen is that there is sexual harassment and, and you know gender violence 
of that sort, and that's not acceptable. So we should we need to stand up for that, right? And so during Degrad, there's a lot of stuff flooding in, and I remember one paper that that we've been seeing that was more like a manifesto, clearly written from by someone, and then you could say, is that acceptable as an? So it was a very interesting discussion about formally speaking, is that acceptable to be published as an academic paper? And I thought, why not? It's okay, um, but still, yeah, we need more. And there is a lot of community activity, as far as I understand. No, we're trying to be, you know, welcoming whoever comes from whatever background. Um, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Um, and and uh, but there needs to be clearly a discussion about it. And as I said, colleagues were harassed. You know, female colleagues. Um, for what? For being female, or homosexual? It's like that cannot be. And so. If that is in the closest tie to the, the types of games that people play, then that to me is of the essence, right? And and I I I mean I think it's very important for to to tell students, look, there's not just these types of games. There's other types of games. There's a superb wide variety. People know that typically. Yeah, I just want to pick up on um, one of the strategies of that clip, which in which which you mentioned, which was humor as a way to get at some of these issues. Do you th is there a role, is there a strong role for humour and irony in games designed today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> also yes, yes, I think so. I mean, uh, game, games have been um, using humour for a very long time. Uh, I don't see any reason why it should become a less potent tool as time wears on, especially when confronting issues like this. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, ice cream. What flavour? Hi. Um, an interesting thing I was just thinking that connects that clip back to thinking about military games, and that in particular is what isn't shown in most military games. Um, and you can draw a very clear parallel between uh, the masculinism that's quite naturalised in video games with a kind of very militarised masculinism as well, which is war is dudes shooting dudes with guns. It's not sexual assault and it's not displaced people and it's not a whole lot of things. It's just dudes shooting dudes. Um, so, you know, so you, I don't know, that's not really a question. It's more yeah, of a As far as I I'm understand, there are very few women and children um, in war games. Yeah, um, and it's really interesting to look especially at for video games that are made like Full Spectrum Warrior, specifically as military training things, which... Um, make it very hard to say video game violence has no effect on people when the military puts a lot of money into the hope that they do. Um, so you have these games, they make two versions of them, like Full Spectrum Warrior, they make a... No, I think it's Full Spectrum Warrior, but it might be both of them. The military version? Well, yeah, well, they made them side by side, and one they made more palatable for a commercial release, and then they make it you know, bloodier and that people don't like you because you're American in the military version. Um, so, you know, so you kind of see how they're really quite rhetorical for military games. And that has that gendered component that, you know, there's no women in war, there's no children in war. Um, I'll stop being that guy who has a comment instead of a question now. <laughs> I could Tony Jones you. Yeah, thank you. I've, oop, there we go. <laughs> I've just sort of been thinking about when you look at uh, like anti sort of military games like recent example in This War of Mine that sort of aims to show that the sort of the displaced people and you know people struggling to survive in shelled out buildings and stuff and how you sort of 
balance that trying to make a sort of point on horrible situations and you know destroyed lives whilst also making a game fun to play and how you, you as sort of academics and researchers understand and negotiate that difficulty I, I, I don't really care about fun I have to say I, I think that um, fun is can be important but it's not the be, on, be all and end all about games so I'm really glad that you brought that up because before I came here today um, I experienced a virtual reality documentary called Ascent um, which is made by a guy who is from Melbourne uh, called Oscar uh, uh, Rabi yep and uh, it was remarkable. What it is is that a um, virtual reality it uses the Oculus Rift, and it's a documentary. He calls it an interactive documentary, and it uh, recounts an experience that his father had in uh, Chile, Chile in '73, uh, uh, I think it was, with the, the um, military coup there, uh, where he witnessed uh, the massacre of a, a group of people. Uh, and it retells it, and it's very conscious about the way that it's a constructed document. Uh, there's very little of what we would call gameplay. You essentially progress through the game by looking at things using the Oculus Rift. Uh, and I think it's one of the most remarkable game-like experiences I've had for a while. Um, and, th th like, fun's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, and so I think... Uh, like maybe commercially there's some impetus there, but games are not just commercial objects. I mean, I haven't seen... I haven't... Strawberry. Um, I was just... When you were talking, I haven't seen that film, documentary slash... Um, but I was thinking of um, Brody Condon's work that he did with The Velvet Strike, which was a great example of taking gameplay and taking the kind of... In, inherent kind of um, aesthetics of violence and turning it in on itself and doing it in such a playful way mm. to kind of make make verbal the kind of tacit knowledges that were going on behind it because it's basically for those that haven't seen it it's um, a hopscotch and shooting game so it's like it's a first person shooter in a space which shouldn't be in it shouldn't be in which is a children's playground um, and so it kind of brings that idea of the ramifications but it also brings that idea of you know, like the idea of media affect rather than media effect. So, I, and I think that's a really important thing to think about when thinking about the aesthetics of violence. Um. There's a couple of questions here at the back. I'm wondering, um, I think for me, games are largely a teaching tool. So, you know, like children kind of can learn games. You can go through situations. They can be you know, teaching in a number of ways. Um, uh, I guess it's a question to you guys about how can we use that as a teaching tool to do more than maybe we're doing right now? What directions can we move in? Um, like, There's a lot of possibilities and um, uh, there's ethical ramifications. There's also um, uh, kind of where we want to go as a society and as a people and as a, as a construct. So what kind of games into the future should we be looking towards to um, promote and what sorts of things should we be you know, jumping on board with, I guess, in, in your opinion? I think there's a couple of people in this audience that could probably answer, like I'm thinking like maybe Chad could answer that in terms of thinking about games that perhaps riff off video games, so exertion games that al allow people to rethink 
placemaking exercise because part of what is really powerful with children is, um, as a teaching tool, is the role of them understanding narration in how we identify. You know, narration is a thing that makes sense. If we don't have a narrative, we just can't make sense of the world. And so it can help provide many narratives, narratives that perhaps alternative narratives that they wouldn't necessarily live through, and also a sense of well-being. So I'm thinking like of Tom's and Amani's work with the Young and Well CRC where they've been doing um, some workshops with, um, with young people to think about how play can be utilised in, in different ways to um, think about a sense of belonging and narration and place, which I think is really important when you've got like information becoming more and more about supposedly a sense of placenessness. Um, but mobile media are highlighting how important place is, that it's actually place that structures all our meanings. So. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> There's also um, a game-based learning, which is basically um, uh, there's research out there that maps existing off-the-shelf games to the curriculum of um, like young children, and so you can use games like Civilization to give them an understanding of how economics works or how politics works. Did you want to say? Sorry, this is still keeping it on the young thing, but I'll get off it at the moment. Um, there's also Katie Salen, who, who in New York does the change for... She's made the first high school, which is play-based, and it's a really exciting quest for change. It's, like, it's fantastic. It's like it could only happen in New York. <laughs> and, and then, of course, there are a lot of game mechanics that can be used in, in many, many different ways, like, you know, like races or escape games or mystery games. So these are all game mechanics that actually work outside the, a game as well and you can use them in a classroom and you can use them for activities to engage children, particularly in adults, yes, particularly if, if it's for um, content that you know they might perceive as difficult or boring and yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, maybe back to the, that humour thing. I mean, one of the um, one of the concerns is that uh, that allows us, it almost inoculates the seriousness. Um, you know, there's, it's great that it's bringing up the issues, but there's a potential that it just allows us to get over it and on with it. And and in that sense, it's actually particularly dangerous. But um, but at the other, there's a, a different issue that I was, I was kind of quite interested in hearing your thoughts on. Is uh, my understanding of the uh, the very basis of the, the um, origin of the internet was the uh, was the kind of early defence warning system, the missile system that um, that was really came out of the uh, the deeply systemic um, bureaucratic type of paranoia about what the other side is planning, and you could almost uh, run that all the way back through the history of warfare, the, the paranoia, and which is. In a way, you could consider it an excess of logic. It's not. It's not like it's a deficiency of logic. It's actually over logical, over determined. Um, and getting back to some of the, th the points that were raised earlier, like about uh, you know the war on terrorism and un underscored by fear and this this sort of pervasive nature of fear. I guess that what what would you consider this the the uh, that tipping point between creative paranoia 
like the actual the process of amazing technologies that emerge from the infinitely infinite regress of paranoia and the um, the, the kind of paralyzing paranoia that we are facing when we consider a an unstipulated threat like terror. Panel. <laughs> That was a plenary and question. (laughs) Thanks, Kerry. So, sorry, let let me just see to rephrase the question. So you're talking about the different ways that the paranoia and that is created by essentially opposing sides can work creatively? Just to take the surveillance paranoia thing and just take that for a little walk um, and in terms of an example. So... When you were using that example, I was thinking of the work that I've done in South Korea, which, um, you know, South Korea is really interesting because it's, um, you know, got a very strong gaming culture, which is in kind of embedded within the everyday. Um, so everyone plays games. That's what people do. And it's a very playful culture as well. The way that this kind of cultural fabric is, is play is an important part. Play and humour is a really important part of bonding. Um, however... So you've got the interpersonal, um, I suppose, like atmosphere, um, and then you've got the infrastructure. Now, South Korea was one of the first um, broadbanded countries in the world, so when they kind of did the leap, they really did the leap. And um, what has kind of come out of this um, power, the techno power, has been a kind of soft power. to the point of there were some workers who were wanting to organise a union strike against Samsung. You know, LG and Samsung are two kind of very major Korean players, both in the local market but globally. And Korea, and, and so Samsung were actually using the mobile phones to track these workers everywhere. And so this is this idea that, you know, on the one hand, geotagging is really interesting. You know, we can, we can find out where we are with GPS, all this kind of stuff. But ultimately... Other people are able to, and other companies and organisations are able to take that information and do something else with it. Um, and so there was a court case, etc. But it was a bit like this—the game example, where it was like you have a ton of paperwork, and and then in the end, you know, after that, you know, an officer just comes in and just lets them go. So you know, it's been actually like uh, nearly a decade that this has been taken to court, and Samsung keep getting off from it because it's the big spooky Samsung and um, so that kind of um, panoptican kind of thing is still very there um, so so I'm just using an example of like yes I think there is some there is a need to be um, there is you know you can there's a bit of healthy paranoia is good when you think about technologies and and how they can track and what that means um, but I think there's also those technologies uh, they can be used for good as well so and I think it's about trying to and I actually think Humour is a really great way of turning um, from perhaps more um, counterproductive models into more productive models because humour is very subjective but it's also very culturally specific. And so if, if, if it resonates, it resonates in a very deep way and it kind of amplifies um, perhaps certain um, issues that need to be talked about and, and dealt with. All I was going to say as well, um, I finally thought of a nice way to <laughs> respond is, I mean, also, like, we, I think sort of what you're partially getting at is maybe also the Games of Empire sort of argument. Oh, I don't know if you've encountered that book. What, what's the author, Brennan? Um, 
Dyer, 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 yeah, Nick Dyer and, um, no, Deputer, Dyer and Deputer, Dyer Witherford and Deputer, sorry, um, where they essentially argue that games, it, it's, it's not so much about the, like the, the content or the theme or the setting or whatever, so much as the structure of games reflects um, the process of becoming a good neoliberal subject uh, that you know creates these flexible identities, these sort of uh, this this work ethic, this this process of producing things, of being rewarded for production, of of going through stages of you know the, these sorts of identities, I suppose, that are actually reflected in games and and also society sort of work quite happily together. I mean, you know, one of the the core understandings of of, of game studies reverts back to um, uh, Roger Kawar and you know games sort of need to be productive, I mean, sorry, unproductive, right? And so I suppose it takes a certain type of society to view the unproductiveness of games as a uh, problem <laughs> as well. Um, very interesting, um, I believe, um, interesting way to look at um, the way that games and play are used towards a certain objective that sits outside of the, you know, just the attraction of the game and the play. Um, we've been uh, my co-editor in a book, recent book, um, we've been looking at using Victor Turner, a cultural anthropologist, uh, who's had this really great idea that you know, um, you know, probably know the the, the uh, example of the rites of passage, right? You know, you just go through something and then you come out, which you find in the hero's journey to it, etc., etc. And Victor Turner differentiated between the limil liminoid and the liminal, where he said that. Um, depending on whether you're using games and those rights to reassess and to basically just say the, the stuff that you've been doing is great, now you become a full-fledged member of the society and you're just basically used the same values, um, which is, you could say, basically using games and game elements and what have you to just, um, you know, say the society we live in is great and we're using games for marketing and just to make you, you know, uh, to control you, to, to use that metaphor, to create more paranoia. That's one way to look at it. And then there is, at the same time, people who, you know, have uh, used games and, and Bernie Tekoven would be one, certainly, who is, you know, talking a lot about fun and, and then you can, uh, but that's a dogma in itself. It's an ideology, again, right? It's a way to say, oh, games are freeing everyone, which might be the case, but towards which objective you could say, towards your revolution, and that will count revolution. Do you see what I'm saying? So you could use games in themselves to not have morality, there's morality that always is attached and it comes with an outside objective. So um, uh, someone I really, really like, uh, it's a German guy, a philosopher of sorts, um, Friedrich von Boris, he's once said um, surveillance, which ties into that. So all these, uh, there's a lot of technologies of surveillance that come causing t paranoia, right? Oh, self-quantify, whatever, it's all kinds of things. He said, Surveillance is a conditio sine qua non. It's the price we're paying for the, the lives we're living. So you could also flip it around, right, and say, well, you know, we've got this, again, space to talk because, you know, there's shields and paranoia is, a, as you say, it's, it's probably a good thing. It just depends, I guess. I like Victor Turner quite a bit to be placing uh, what's, what's, what's the agenda behind that. What's the rhetoric, really, you know? Question from Chad. Test. Um, I have a question about video game vocabulary. 
Um, how important do you think it is to reflect upon the types of vocabulary that we use within video games? Like, uh, not too long ago, we had a game design exercise upstairs where we were uh, modifying existing games. We tried to modify Paper, Scissors, Rock, and I realized how, um, like, the, 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 the verbs and things that we use, in, even in a simple game like Paper, Scissors, Rock, where you beat the other player, or, you know, like all, all of this stuff that's really inherent within um, video games. Um, how important is it that we reflect upon this? And there's, there's also another example that ties, on, ties in with um, uh, humor. There's an indie game called Punks Not Dead. I don't, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but uh, it's, a, it's an indie game where you play as a, probably a teenage guy and there's a lot of like trashy punk rock music in the background and you just go around like punching other people smashing cars smashing um street lights and things like that um and then there was a uh, another game which is visually almost the same as punks not dead called hug punks and it was kind of a criticism of that game um made by a developer named Merit Kopas where it was it was basically the same game but with different uh, vocabulary. So instead of smashing and punching and beating, uh, you would walk around hugging, and um, you know sharing love with with the other players, the, the other characters that are in the game, and even cats and things like this. And yeah. Old using recontextualization. It's uh, you know, as you know, um, uh, wonderful examples in the arts. Um, you know. Um, where uh, you, it's very similar actually to use different types of words. It's very similar to be saying, oh, we're not going to let you shoot, we're going to give you a camera, by the way, something that's been done in Beyond Good and Evil, right? Where you don't shoot with a rifle, you just have a camera and you have to that way capture, which is, it was at, back in the day, 2000, whatever, vibes. Five six was a super ironic comment, which then spawned a lot of games, smaller games. There was no term for yet. There was no indie games yet, right? But uh, or there was probably, but it wasn't really in the consciousness, I guess. Um, uh, sort of mods where people were then tr testing around with first-person you know, uh, engines or, or games, uh, where you could throw flowers at people rather than shooting and that kind of stuff. So I'm just saying. The, the case you're making, Chad, about using different words, there is a recontextualization technique, which is a hacking technique to me, that you can use to try to you know, reposition the game and the thing that you're doing, and which is very, very interesting. And um, Noam Chomsky says, you know, and, and Mark said it, you know, like the way we're, um, that we are really shaping our consciousness by using different words and different metaphors and different ways of projectiling and whatever we want to do. So that's a very powerful thing to do. And it, it's a very sneaky way, too, to just, you know, sort of embellish this thing into people's minds. It's like, what, hold on, what am I doing here right now? Oh, yeah, it's, I'm using different things. So I think it's a very powerful technique. Very cool technique. I think also, like, within a family context, when you actually work with, uh, when you have, when you have uh, children, then it's quite important that you actually discuss with them like what they are playing and you know and what words they use to describe what they are playing. 
So, I mean, things like you're not, you're not really shooting someone and that, you know, whatever you're shooting isn't really dead. So, I mean, like in, in my family, I actually made a... Um, I, I, I try to explain what actually happens, you know, and that there are polygons, and you know, and that they're actually, that they're actually, they're they they fragging these uh, polygons, and you know, they come back, and and it, it kind of it it needed to be that way because it it kind of it does affect their language and their understanding of what a game actually is, and and you know, as long as um, children are young, the game has to be fun, and. It can't be anything serious. Um, <clears throat> no, I think that's really important. Um, I think that it points to quite a few things. Firstly, that obviously uh, it illustrates that um, the by far the most popular games are competitive in some sort of way. And the language that we use taps into the most commonly powerful language of competition, which is I, I beat you, I you know, I killed you, I defeated you, and a whole host of much more strong words that I'm not even going to go into that are used in sort of online first-person shooters, right? And so I think um, it's important to think about that, what sort of references they're tapping into, why it is that these words are particularly powerful in terms of a competitive sense, and uh, uh, equally how then in sort of a sideways manner, going back to more directly the, the theme of this panel, how then uh, uh, the representations of the military are allowed to sort of tap into and recontextualize military phrases like, like fragging, like you just said, right? Or, um, you know, a whole host of other things that we hear commonly in, in military first-person shooters suddenly becomes this, this language, this most easily graspable language of conflict. Interesting, and I don't have really clear empirical valence, uh, validity for this, but I think that, at least to the public, the military has the increasing tendency to try to abstract the language that they're using, so there's no victims. It's just, you know, there's uh, circumstantial, um, you know... Uh, there's red dots, exactly, whereas you could probably argue that there is an increasing tendency to be using that social act, the, the military social act, in, in combat, in the abstraction, in the model, in the games world, which is very interesting, whereas there's an appeasing sort of, you know, like, let's all be cool, no worries, you know. There's no one's dead, really. Well, they are sort of, you know. Um, and where this, uh, there's, it's a flipping around. It's again one of those things where you know life imitates art, art imitates life. It's quite, an, it's there is effects reciprocity. There is clearly reciprocity in there. So th that would I, I've been I've been noting actually. Hmm. We perhaps got time for the, one more question. Is there that hand still at the back, or has your question been answered? We've covered a lot of incredible territory tonight. Um, Thank you for your questions. Thanks for the generosity of the panel. Please put your hands together in thanking Stefan Voltz, Stefan Greuter, Larissa Hjorth, Dan Golding, and Grace McQuilton, and make sure you get yourselves over to Project... Oh, you can thank, you can thank me if you want. Kate Rhodes. Um, get yourselves over to Project Space to see the show in the last couple of days. And thanks very much for coming again. Thank you.